You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And this is Shane. And so today we have some stories for you about something gross and horrible. (laughs) Oh, I love stories about gross and horrible things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but nevertheless interesting yes. and probably something people have heard a little bit about but you know it's actually been a long time so we're going to start by talking about this the mad cow disease and i mean do you do you remember when this was like a thing a while ago yeah i remember <laughs> i feel like we've grown up in this age where there's a lot of animal based diseases that people are afraid of like swine flu bird flu mad cow disease like i can't <laughs> I feel like there's this weird like animal farm phenomenon that people were obsessed with that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, I do remember that. But I f- also feel like I haven't heard very much about mad cow disease in a while. I don't know. No, it's been some time. I mean, I think given our limited diets, too, I think that helps. That probably keeps us out of the danger zone. Danger zone! <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this story could start at the beginning of animal agriculture to understand the full scope of how events we we're about to describe eventually came to pass but suffice it to say for now that one thing that humans realized early on was that we needed to feed animals that we were raising that we were planning to raise them to slaughter them as food they had to eat too and what better food to feed them than the scraps and remains that we were not going to be eating as food for ourselves anyway so that way we didn't have to produce much more we just use kind of stuff we weren't already using right makes sense so what happened is they would sometimes even often in certain cases but they would feed herbivore animals the ground up remains of other animals so like we weren't going to eat the brains and the spine and the bones and the some of the organs of some of these animals like we just cut away the muscle tissue and then with the rest of the carcass throw it in a grinder and incorporate into animal feed to feed to those animals that we were going to be eating later on and even sometimes of the same species so feeding cow to a cow Mm. so yeah they'd grind up these cow carcasses and feed them to living cows now this wasn't exclusive and it wasn't the only source of food that they had but it did happen here and there and our story really begins in the winter of 1984 oh Big Brother has taken over. Yes, yes, yes. The Ministry of Education yep. has hidden all of the tracks, and uh, you can't talk to anybody. Right. We've double think and double speak, and everybody's got a telescreen. Yep. We have to do mandatory exercise. <laughs> oh. We've legislated peace by controlling everyone with a giant dictatorship, I guess. Yeah. Are we at war with Eurasia? <laughs> exactly. Something like that. Okay. Whoever they tell us we're at war with. Great. So we've established that we're in 1984. (laughs) (laughs) A few few days before Christmas, David B., who I think was a veterinarian, he visited a farm at which he had been asked to examine a sick cow. And this cow in particular was displaying these odd symptoms. And this is, I want to say, in Britain. And so this cow was experienced a lot of weight loss. It seemed to have a lack of coordination. It had this bizarre arched back sort of movement it was doing and very concerning to the farmers so they called this veterinarian and he came in and and took a look at this cow and it was really unclear of the cause of what was happening and so the cow was untreated or at least it was not successfully treated and then six weeks later it was dead 
And so they decided, well, let's go ahead and cut this thing open and do an autopsy and see what we find. And what they revealed in this autopsy was something called spongiform encephalopathy. That is a mouthful. Got it. (laughs) Nailed it. Those words, encephalitis and encephalopathy and all that, it's just, they're very strange words. Those consonants just don't like to go together in that order in my mouth when I'm trying to say them. So I think (laughs) we're okay. And essentially this spongiform encephalopathy, it means basically that the neurons deteriorated in the brain in these sort of whole clusters. So it almost looks sponge-like when you look at the brain, especially under a microscope. And eventually this results in death, as you might imagine, because... Well, the brain is literally rotting away. It's one of the most important things in our body to keep us alive right after our fingernails. So just kidding. <laughs> but it is it is very important. So, well, that's obviously very important. Our fingernails, not so much. But a rotting brain is, is bad for your mortality. So I hear. We all need our brains, right? Like we don't need it turning into wet cotton candy in our heads. <laughs> there you go. Wet cotton. That's a good way of describing it. Ugh. So three years later, it was clear that many animals were infected by a similar disease. So you started to see this kind of phenomenon expand. So now we're in 1987, the sequel to 1984, and you start seeing <laughs> that more animals and more animals are becoming infected with a similar type of disease. Right. And so what ended up happening was research started to isolate the origins of the disease to cows that had been fed protein derived from other cows. So cannibal cows, essentially. Yep. Involuntary cannibal cows. And that is essentially what ended up happening was They were feeding cows to cows, which, of course, is a form of cannibalism. Yeah. That's the origin story of this spongiform encephalopathy. Ooh, well done. Right on your first try. (laughs) Nah, I practiced so much. (laughs) I was saying it in my head, I'm going, encephalopathy, encephalopathy. (laughs) (laughs) You listeners don't, fortunately for you, have to hear how many takes it took for me to get that right. But. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. So. Unclear on the process through which this happens, they sought to discover how transmissible this condition was. And so they demonstrated that mice could develop. Okay, so again, they were taking these cows and they wanted to see, okay, if we feed these cows to other animals or if we give them the same disease tissue, will we see the same thing? And so they did see that mice would develop this um, this bovine spongiform encephalitis. Okay, so again, because this was in cows, they called it the bovine form of this, or BSE, or bovine spongiform encephalitis. And they were able to show that mice did in fact contract the spongiform disease from eating the cow parts. However, they still weren't sure whether this would actually pass to humans. Well, they really hoped that it wouldn't pass to humans. (laughs) Right. But of course, they weren't going to ask any volunteers to like find out and be like, can we inject you with an untreatable disease that will rot your brain from the inside out? (laughs) People are like, you know... I was thinking about doing that, but no. <laughs> yeah, or that you get that one that one person every now and again that's like, eh, how many gift cards do I get for this research? Right. So many undergrad students were like, I don't know. Am I going to get out of my student loans? <laughs> Technically, yes, you will. Your family will not, but you will. <laughs> so anyway, they weren't going to ask anybody to volunteer, so they were just going to ask everyone to volunteer. And so because they were uncertain of the extent of the risk and they were unwilling to lose money on their investment in their product, the industry, in conjunction with the British government, campaigned to assure the public that beef was probably safe to eat and continued to produce and sell it to the public. So the, the total opposite of what they should have done. Y- yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So although they placed a ban in 1990 on feeding cows to cows, this was not strictly enforced and people continued to do so. So in 1993, you found and you saw that there was the highest density of BSE reported 
in since since discovering the disease existed and probably honestly ever because like this had become more of a problem as the industrial animal and agriculture picked up and because also they just weren't seeing these diseases with people that like this was probably the the highest this had ever been was in 1993 and like all of history that's <laughs> that's wild good job 1993 oh man 93 was a good year <laughs> think that was the year after Jurassic Park came out. Maybe Jurassic Park 2. I'm not sure. Anyway, the first ever recorded case of a human death attributable to this disease that we found in the research was in 1995. And it was this 19-year-old named Stephen Churchill. When he died, they did an autopsy. They, they saw the spongiform encephalopathy happening in his brain. And there was already a name for a disease that caused this spongiform brain disease in humans, and it's called Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease. And so they diagnosed him as having died of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease because he had those disease-like symptoms. And I'm going to go ahead and call this CJD from here on out because it's going to be a lot easier for all of us if I do that. And so this CJD often occurs sporadically, so it's you don't necessarily have anything to predict that it's going to come on. It can also occur by coming into contact with the brain tissue or spinal tissue from people who had that disease. But what was interesting about this is that, again, Churchill was only 19 years old. And CJD tends to affect people in their late 50s or 60s at the earliest, not in their teenage years. Okay. And so this was very different looking sort of, well, not very different. It looked very similar to this, but it didn't have a lot of the other profile for the patient as well as other characteristic features of it and two more similar cases occurred later that year very unprecedented to have a rate like that especially in young people and because this seemed to be this unique version of cjd they termed it variant kretzfeld jackup disease or vcjd so if you can remember all those initials that's what that stands for it's easier than than the mush-mouthedness that we're going to come across this episode. So by the end of 1996, there were eight cases of CJD that would be traced back to infected beef. So thanks for touting that it was safe to eat when it was clearly not. Yeah. The British government banned the export of British beef shortly thereafter. So at least they contained it. Yep. Now, there was a case of infected beef that they found, the bovine spongiform encephalitis, and this was, or BSE, and that was in 2003 in Canada. And the first case of an infected cow, again, right now we're just talking about the cows, not people, that was not imported from somewhere else occurred in Texas in 2005. So this is that they found a cow, it was not imported from somewhere else, and it had BSE, and that was in 2005 in Texas in the United States. As of 2019, there's an article that I found, 232 human deaths have been attributed to spongiform encephalitis, presumably from BSE. Right, and only four of them were in the United States, although it is hypothesized that they actually contracted it while traveling abroad. So it's hard to say, but that, that still 232 human people died from this thing. Right, just needlessly. Yeah. So what is this thing? What is this BSE? Right. So this is actually the whole point and the whole intention of this discussion today was to talk about what is causing this. And this is something called prion diseases. So bovine spongiform encephalitis or BSE is one of many types of prion diseases. There are about six types of known animal prion diseases and five types of known human prion diseases that I was able to find. So the animal prion diseases include, as I mentioned, the bovine spongiform encephalopathy or BSE. 
There's also something called chronic wasting disease or CWD, something called scrapey, maybe scrappy or scrappy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like scurvy. Like that's a pirate's disease. Yeah. <laughs> for animals. Yeah. <laughs> Transmissible mink encephalopathy, feline spongiform encephalopathy. Oh, important point here. The only animal that is commonly a house pet that has been found to also have one of these prion diseases is cats, unfortunately. So for those of you who have cats, never been recorded case in the United States, if that makes you feel any better. It does. And then ungulate spongiform encephalopathy. And so those are the six types of animal prion diseases. Yeah. And then you've got those five human types, which you've got Critzfield Jacob disease or CJD. You've got the variant Critzfield Jacob disease. VCJD, right? Keeping up with those. The Gertzman Strassler Schenker syndrome. Those are clearly American names. So G S S S. Just kidding. So it's so many S's in that. That make that makes sense. And then fatal familial insomnia. And then Kuru. Yes. I wasn't planning to go much into Kuru, except that that is what was commonly observed in the tribes in Papua New Guinea who were engaging in cannibalism of their dead. But same sort of origins here and so let's get into these prions because prions are actually fairly straightforward to at least give an, a general description of without going into the real nuances of just how biology works but prions are essentially what we call these misfolded proteins and prions are found almost exclusively in the brain not exclusively but almost exclusively so at the beginning, when a polypeptide chain of proteins are forming, they don't have a shape to begin with. And what happens is a ribosome in our cells will facilitate folding that protein into this sort of neat three-dimensional shape that's called its native form. And it has this sort of spirally shape. It looks very orderly and neat and it's all nice. And it's necessary for the protein to have the correct form in order to function correctly. It's got to be in all the right positions. Okay. And if there are damages to the protein or the amino acids, if there are mutations, if there are any errors that occur at any point, then what might happen in that amino acid sequence of proteins is that it might fail to fold into its native form or maybe even not fold at all. And what will happen is it will start to like fold back in on itself in this weird cluster, sort of like if you ever to pull a glob of hair out of the drain in your sink or your tub or something, it looks like this knot of nonsense that it can't do anything. And what's really problematic about these prions is when that happens, that can often trigger misfolding in other proteins that are forming nearby and throughout that area. And it can just spread like a zombie infection outward from there. Have you ever watched those old movies where like the printing press goes wrong, like the newspapers go wrong? Like they, they you know, the, the newspaper's running through the machine and then like the paper gets jammed up and it like gums up the whole works and then everything shuts down. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what happens here. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way. It's a good analogy. I like it. Yeah, that works, right? So as we mentioned before, this can be genetically inherited or acquired through oral contact with contaminated brain or spinal tissue or in the blood in meat of certain animals or humans. Now, although it can't be transmitted via blood transfusions, research in 2018 found evidence that individuals with VCJD specifically could have prions in their blood. So it's there. So we've got to deal with that now. Routine sterilization has not been shown to conclusively rid surgical equipment of prions if that equipment came into contact with prions. So we have no like regular sterilization processes that actually clear our equipment of those things. Right. 
And so while alternatives are explored, it is recommended that surgical equipment simply be destroyed if contacted with contaminated body parts. So if they are used on contaminated body parts, they should just get rid of them altogether. Okay. And, and prions cannot be transmitted by consuming other related animal products such as milk. So if you're worried about mad cow disease, you can't get it from drinking milk. No, but another point on here that I forgot to mention when we were putting all of this together is that you also can't just cook it out. It doesn't seem that any amount of treatment to the meat itself is actually a guarantee that that will get rid of the prions in there. They seem to be relatively hardy, unfortunately. So one question I had when I was learning about this was trying to think, okay, so we had this like one instance back in 1984 in Britain with this cow, but how'd that cow get it? And like, why hasn't this happened before? And unfortunately, because this sort of just kind of came out of nowhere, it's not really, no one's really sure what happened or how it happened. Okay. So people have been speculating on it, but it's never been clearly identified. Now, what some have argued was that because this is something that can just sort of happen, or at least we don't really know the conditions under which it happens, but it can be that like a genetic mutation, for example, that happens, that it just happened to happen in a cow that ended up being its brain and spine were, were ground up and fed to other cows. And then that's how this got started because it presumably that those prions got distributed among a whole bunch of cows, right? And that they didn't know where it was. And we'll, cause we're going to get into a little bit more of how the prions work cause they are very insidious, but that's, that's maybe a speculation. Like, because we've known that humans could have this disease for a long time that's not necessarily caused by contact with infected meat but because it happens via genetics or other mutations we've known that animals could have this disease because of genetics or certain mutations or potentially contaminants we just don't know and that it just happened to occur in a place where it was likely to spread and cause more of an epidemic just by virtue of how we had those things organized but we don't actually know we don't actually know if that's what happened there could be something else that was going on it could be that like it's more likely to happen in ish- in situations with cannibalism. It was like a perfect encephalopathy storm. <laughs> Great. Well said. Also, I think I've only said encephalopathy multiple times because I have it down. But the minute that I try to say storm, I try to say it with a TH. Storm. I went, I went encephalopathy storm. Man, it's craziness. You got your, your S's and your TH's all mixed around. <laughs> all right. So cannibalism is something that does occur routinely though. So kind of like you talked about like just how this happened or how this could have happened and kind of the funny origins of it. But cannibalism is something that does happen in some species and only sporadically in others like humans it doesn't happen very often in humans. It's not really reported that it happened very often in like early man either. So, right. you know, cannibalism is not something that is common among humans, but it does happen across species. But it does not consistently result in prion diseases. So what you'll find, though, is it is occurring at higher instances among cannibals versus non-cannibals. So you will see, like, in non-cannibal species or individuals or organisms that are non-cannibal, they're far less likely to contract it or develop it versus those that do engage in cannibalistic types of behaviors. And I'm actually wondering if, and I'm totally speculating, this is like super armchair psychology here, but... The fact that these prion diseases tend to, when you look at the at Kuru, for example, what was happening was as a routine cultural practice, they would consume their dead. And the men, and especially the men with higher ranks, would get the more choice pieces of the body that they would eat, the muscle tissue. Whereas the women and children and lower ranked men 
would get the less desirable parts like the brain and spinal cord. And the likelihood of someone getting prion disease was like outlandishly, exponentially higher in women and children in those cultures. And probably because they were eating the parts of the body that were most likely to have this disease. So probably what happens, and again, totally speculating here. I wasn't speculating about the women and children thing. That actually is, is a fact. Like it's a fact that men eat the good parts, women and children tend to eat those things. But what I'm speculating here is that probably misfolded proteins occur somewhat regularly in the brain and we have these prions that are in there. They just don't ever spiral out of control and so they never really cause any serious damage. But what happens is if you eat those parts of the body, that's when they start to spiral out of control because they they compound with all the ones that are already there. Again, I have no evidence for this. I'm probably 100% wrong, but that's just, I'm trying to make some sense out of this where I can see what's the logical progression by which those things would occur is my thought. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I mean, I think it's still something that's, as much as people want to study it and like disease control and stuff, I just don't know that there's a lot of support for like, how how does it get here? Right. Right. Like we just don't really know. Right. Okay. So let's go ahead and dive into how these prions work once they get in the brain. Cause we did talk about the neuro degeneration but there's there's also there's more to unpack here so yes fun yay so the exact process by which the prions affect the brain is not clearly understood which should come as no surprise right to theme, theme, of, <laughs> theme of the show theme, theme of life why we do what we do uh, it's not really yeah. clear exactly that's that's ultimately when we finally end the show we're gonna we're gonna ask the question so why do we do what we do and we're gonna go i don't know <laughs> it's not really understood <laughs> What's interesting about this in particular is that the effects are, the effects of these diseases are understood very clearly. Right. So as I said, prions cause neurodegeneration. And what happens is neurons throughout the brain, they decay in the sort of ever-growing clusters, leaving these initially small but ever-widening, gaping holes in the brain. And that is bad. <laughs> for our neuron connections that our neurons the thing that we rely on to communicate to one another so that we can do things with our bodies so that our bodies function normally so that the machine works those are running like if you can imagine just like shooting holes in the engine of a car like it's going to stop working fairly quickly and if you start with like little tiny holes like maybe things will work for a while but as those holes get bigger and bigger then it's going to shut down i always go back to the image of like in movies that have really strong acid that like melts away like a surface area or something. Yeah. Like that's to me what this is like. It's like, imagine yeah. like just dumping a vial of acid on your brain and then watching the holes kind of grow. Goodbye brain. Yeah. Goodbye brain. So prions often have very long incubation periods. And so it could take years before any symptoms actually manifest. So you could be experiencing like there could be those tiny holes like eating away at, the, at your brain, but you may not actually experience any of those symptoms until later. This is one of the scariest parts about this to me is the fact that you could have this and you wouldn't even know for years that it was rotting your brain. Man, we should have put this in the Halloween episodes. <laughs> I did. That did occur to me as I was prepping this. Yeah. <laughs> Happy holidays, everyone. Here's your gift. <laughs> exactly. Once you start seeing the symptoms, though, the subject has a 100% guarantee of death within two to three years at most. And nothing and no one has ever survived, which is also like so finite and definitive and scary like that is absolutely terrifying yeah this prions suck <laughs> like <laughs> boo <laughs> boo prions <laughs> yeah they're they're hardcore killing machines if you will so 
Some of the symptoms that you will start to see early on in prion disease is some basic memory loss, maybe some visual disturbances. You tend to see some changes in behavior that look like personality changes and difficulty with general coordination. Just because you have those things does not mean you necessarily have a prion disease. Unfortunately, a lot of symptoms can look the same for different causes, but in this case, that is something that occurs when at the beginning stages of prion disease. And this can later devolve into things like blindness, weakness, involuntary movements, dementia, potentially a coma. From what I understand of it, too, it, it kind of like it happens pretty quickly. I mean, if you're talking two to three years, it's not like, oh, I'm kind of dizzy. Then then like, you know, you've got a couple of years it's like it happens pretty rapidly. Yeah, pretty much every day is going to be worse than the day before until you are dead. <laughs> Which is an allegory for life, but this just kind of <laughs> exacerbates it. An allegory. <laughs> you see, you peak at day one and everything else is a <laughs> decline from there. Oh, if you didn't know I was a cynic before, the next few episodes are going to be just me going through my existential crisis. <laughs> just <laughs> this whole show is set up to be a very long complaint about the miseries of life. <laughs> So, I mean, here's the thing, though, like when you look at this, like you are you are talking about something that does destroy pretty much the, the thing that controls all the functions in your body. So as it starts to deteriorate and it starts to rust and it starts to go away, you're going to lose all the faculties that make you function on a normal basis. Yeah, it's I don't know. There's nothing good about this. It's just it's an unfortunate thing. And unfortunately, there's also like you can't necessarily predict it. I mean. Obviously, the better our regulations are at requiring inspection of animals to see if they have anything that looks like an infection or a disease will help for those people who are going to be eating that stuff. And then better practices around what we feed our animals to try and reduce the extent to which it's likely to occur in the first place. There were literally hundreds, if not thousands of animals that have been destroyed and they were literally just killed and incinerated and not used for anything for fear of them having prion diseases and they didn't actually test them they were just in a herd where they had some infected individuals and so it's possible that they did but it's hard to tell and so this is something that you can do relatively little about like we can take as many precautions as possible about the things that we know are contributors to this but unfortunately they're like prions are just rough man like these misfolded proteins uh, we just try and do everything we can to not cause them to misfold yep that's pretty much what it comes down to and try not to inherit it yeah (laughs) yeah exactly try not to get it is pretty much what it comes down to so i mean like you mentioned like there's nothing that can reverse or treat it like there's no treatment for it once you have it you have it and that's the thing that's kind of scary too is like once you have it you're done yeah once you have it you can't get rid of it right they can prescribe medication for pain and make you feel better and reduce some of the involuntary movements but that's about it like once you have it it's pretty much palliative care like you're making yourself comfortable until the day you die as much as is possible yeah mm-hmm. so all right well that's kind of what prions are i mean if if you didn't know essentially they are these misfolded proteins that show up in your brain sometimes we don't know where they come from sometimes they're mutations that are sort of spontaneously occur and sometimes we get them by consuming them so if we can at least avoid the consuming them part we can reduce the instances to some extent but there are 11 different types six of them animal five of them human that are known and cannibalism does seem to have elevated rates of prion diseases And that's pretty much my entire summary of this discussion, I think. I mean, those are all the take-home points. I mean, thank you, PETA, for sponsoring our (laughs) plant-based diet infomercial here. Uh, (laughs) Totally joking there. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But if you guys want to give us money, then 
you know, like, <laughs> that can happen. So anyway, the intention of this was not to even say like, don't necessarily meet again in the United States. There's only been like four cases of anyone that have had this. And I mean, that's, I don't want to be flippant about this. Like those are four human lives that were lost and it may not have been something they actually got in the United States though. That part's not clear. They could have, but it also hasn't happened very often in the U S. So it seems like they do a fairly good job of at least having regulations in place and people enforcing that and adhering to those regulations. And yeah, I mean, it's just something to be really careful of because I think we liked to believe that we were safer from this than we are because that you have to be fairly specific about how you contract it if you're just going to be eating it. And then we found out like, oh, maybe you could get it from blood under some circumstances. Like we didn't think we could, but maybe it can. And so it's just essentially my thought here is quarantine is good around things like this and just be careful you know like even if we didn't think we could get it from blood there's no point in testing the limits there i don't need that answer yeah exactly that's where i'm at i just don't need that answer like i'm okay with not knowing do you have anything else on this no i think that's a good place to wrap it up i mean i think you know one thing i would say is like if you're if you are ever doing a talk on encephalopathy practice it a lot before you say it because both of us really struggle with that word yeah don't practice having encephalopathy just practice, practice saying, saying it encephalopathy. yes yeah just say just say this just just practice those words if you're going to present on it but yeah yeah i think that's it i mean i don't have anything else to add to that perfect all right well then we can segue real quick into our recommendations recommendations Ah, yes. Do you want to go first this time? Sure. The first one that just sort of popped up for me was I recently watched a documentary and I totally understand this is not for everyone, but if you are interested in having your opinions, I guess, challenged, there's this documentary called Hail Satan with a question mark. And it was a documentary about Satanists and it was really interesting. And I think it was really well done. First of all, there was a lot I didn't know about this And it also just forced me to think about it. So whether you're a Christian or atheist or Muslim or whatever, I would actually really recommend that you just like give it a, give it a watch. If you are, if you're interested in learning about something new related to this, it was a really crazy documentary that I found just really had me thinking a lot about something. I didn't really know that much about that. I thought I knew something about that. Apparently I didn't. So was it about the church of Satan? Yes. Specifically, I think it was the satanic temple was what it was primarily about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so I studied that for a little bit when I was in school, like when I was in like high school and like in my early adult years. And it's really interesting. And actually, like, I would say the the basic tenets aren't bad. It's not about hailing Satan. <laughs> kind of. It was interesting is after I watched that, I had to I had to do this is I asked some people. I didn't give them any context. And I just read through the tenets and said, like, how much of that do you agree with? And like, I, all of that sounds good to me. And I said, OK, well, <laughs> then you're like, welcome to the Church of Satan. And everybody goes, no. I know. And again, like I wasn't trying to be a Satanist. I'm not trying to be a Satanist. I'm not trying to recruit anyone. I'm not trying to say that anyone is good or bad or right or wrong on any of this issue. Mostly it was just like, wow, that was very, very eye opening. Super informative. Yeah. Really illuminating. So that's, that's my recommendation. Cool. I like that. I have a music recommendation. This is not for everybody either. And this is not really anything for anybody who's trying to expand their expand their minds or, or learn something new, but refused is a band that I grew up listening to for some time. They put out this really great record when I was younger called the shape of punk to come. And it's this really good, like loud noise, Rocky record. 
But in October, they put out a new album called War Music, and it's really good. And I've been listening to that a lot lately. So that's my recommendation. Just if you like really loud, like really interesting song structures and, you know, aggressive-ish lyrics, like War Music is a really cool record. Sounds like something I would want to check out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you like Refused, if you ever listened to Refused, but... I never did. Oh yeah. Well, then start with Shape of Punk to Come. Don't don't start with War Music, but okay. well, War Music <laughs> is good. But Shape of Punk to Come is kind of like their, it's their like uh, physical graffiti or whatever other famous, like it's their Back in Black or their, you know, wow, or Revolver or I don't know, like whatever whatever like you, their their album is like that's their album. It smells like Teen Spirit. No, wait, what was it called? Yeah, it's their it's their Nevermind. Nevermind. That's what it was. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in utero is great, but it's there. Never mind. Perfect. So war music <laughs> is their war music is their bleach. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yourself or someone like you. We're just gonna sit yeah. like, so there and drop the name of a whole bunch of like albums that seem like that was the one that put you on the map. <laughs> albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A day at the races. No, a night at the opera. Yeah. They- <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's my recommendation. I would check it out if you're interested in stuff like that. All right, cool. Well, I've got nothing else then. We're trying this new segment that we introduced last week that we're going to try this new thing where we just come up with a recommendation or two and we're just going to share with you. And if you have any recommendations, we would actually be interested in sharing those as well. Even if it's not something that we agree with, if it's something that speaks to you and it's something that I don't absolutely hate, then I will be willing to share it. There are some things that I'm not going to share because I find them to be harmful. And so those things I will not share, but pretty much anything else like I, you're it would you'd be relatively hard pressed to find something that, that sounds like a challenge. I'm not challenging you. I'm not going to share anything <laughs> that is like super pseudoscience or conspiracy theories, but anything else that you like fantasy music, movies, TV shows, articles that you've read, whatever, send it our way. And I would love to share it with everybody. And that can just be a thing that we do. That's kind of fun. I think a big part of what makes this podcast great. And I think of you know, what makes the science community great is the sense of community and that we are a group of people that are just trying to understand the world a little bit better. And so, you know, I think that there is something to be said about understanding that we are more than just the research articles that we read. You know, we do a lot of stuff and we are interested in a lot of things that bring us joy. And so it's kind of nice to kind of bring it back to those things that make us happy and and feel good. This podcast is great. It is. It really is. We have a lot of fun. This podcast (laughs) is great. That's my recommendation. Listen to why we do what we do. (laughs) I was was trying to make a joke that my only takeaway from everything you said was this podcast is great. I'm just kidding. But no, no, I agree with you. I think it, it is a sense of community that's important. And so I would like to have more of that. And so if you have anything you'd like to share about prion diseases, hopefully you don't have one. You probably don't. But if you have any information you'd love to share we would love to share that with our listeners as well of course you can rate and review us wherever you find your podcast please share us with a friend consider joining us on patreon to get some goodies some extra bonus you can hear all the cuts of me trying to say encephalopathy (laughs) which i got right on the first try that time yes we got it oh and thanks as always of course to our amazing audio producer justin greenhouse for his incredible work on these episodes they have gotten just better and better and better and i wish i would have hired him a long time ago Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. You've been awesome. Okay, cool. Well, I've got nothing else. So unless you have any final thoughts, Shane is shaking his head. Nope, I'm good. Perfect. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts 
or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Yeah, I'm so sorry. It's just, it's, there's a lot and I'm, it's hard and I'm sorry. And thank you for being patient. Encephalopathy is a hard word to say. It is. Like, yeah, those syllables just, those sounds have a hard time stringing them together. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, uh, you had to pick this episode. Like, you had to pick an episode that was going to be hard to say. You're welcome. I appreciate it.